Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. So, finishing up uh, a few episodes here, episode 243, um, about basements. So, um, this gets to the nitty-gritty, what I'm sure everyone's holding their breath for is waterproofing historic basements. So, in the past hundred years, basements have become a home for new moisture-vulnerable necessities such as furnaces, air conditioners, hot water heaters, and lawnmowers. During this time, homeowners discovered two things. First, this mechanical equipment needed a dry space, not a wet one. Second, if they had a dry space at or below grade, it was a much more convenient storage area than the attic. The evolution has brought us to the point where the basement becomes a valuable living or office space in a historic structure. Old house owners creates an exciting and sometimes exciting extra room or bedroom or study while organizations say like the National Park Service add two offices, a lunchroom and public rooms. And when I say this, it could be like in a house museum or museums where they don't want to disturb the historic nature of houses or the dwellings that people see. So they either move to the the basement or the attics for their uh, office rooms. Suddenly, keeping water from invading the basement becomes a top priority. This is never an easy task, but some new products combined with the traditional methods allow us to make historic foundations 100% waterproof without significantly affecting the structure and fabric of the building. Sometime in the past 20 years, the construction industry made a distinction between waterproofed and damp-proofed below-grade surfaces. Simply stated, a waterproof surface is one that has has the ability to block the movement of water, In the case of the historic basement, I'm trying to keep water out, but in the construction of fountains, fish ponds, and roof decks, we hold water in using these types of same products. Anti-hydro, ram top, shore seal, butyl membrane, claymax, hydroshore, bitumy, multi-thing, tough and dry, volclay, bentonite, and shed lead are all waterproofing products of one kind or another. Most are great, greatly enhanced systems that will go well beyond the traditional asphalt coverings and polyethylene barrier surfaces of just a few years prior. In contrast, damp proofing products are moisture inhibitors that won't hold water. These products are designed to prevent small quantities of moisture from penetrating a surface and are not designed for prolonged exposure to large volumes of water. Unfortunately, a wet basement is often the result of subsurface water standing against the basement wall. As the quantity of water increases, so does the hydrostatic pressure, leading to the failure of traditional damp proofing techniques and ensuing procedures. So, first, let's talk about how do we alleviate these issues. So, first, 
when waterproofing a historic basement, complete perimeter excavation is without a doubt the hardest. A lot of landscaping will be destroyed in the process, but good planning and good horticulturalists can lessen the impact. Never imagine, though, that it will be pretty. It's going to be very ugly. This is a war. For 200 years, that beautiful shade tree has been sending its roots into your foundation to find food and water. Sometimes the roots can be cut back and the tree saved, but don't count on it. The trauma of the project alone may kill the tree. It is usually best to simply take out everything within 10 feet of the structure before you start digging. Aside from landscaping, plants and possible artifacts could be in the soil. There are no salvage value to the extracted material. So if it appears to be fairly clean, which free of rocks, bricks and metal, etc., it is usually worth saving a portion for later backfill and grading. Most often, it is, if it is not clean, and the latter needs are minimal, so it makes more sense to remove the material from the site to provide maximum open space for the ensuing procedures. So I find a backhoe is the most efficient tool for this type of excavation. A skilled operate, operator and machine currently costs 50 an hour. We are usually able to complete a house excavation in one or two days. At one time, as a one-time archaeologist um, in school, I, I, as an associate, that the, the, I made a builder's trench immediately surrounding a house as a class project when I was in England. And this had the potential for being an archaeological gold mine. So I'm not talking about uh, hardcore period artifacts, but an archaeologist in the standpoint of removing material from the base of a historic home, which is, um, which can be, can be very important. Sometimes you find dumps. Sometimes they would, in the 18th century, they would just dig holes and they would just throw all their refuge there. And you can find a lot in this dig around the house to try and uh, shore up the water from coming into your basement. So, But although few individuals or historic structures, stewards, can justify the time and expense and, and as a contractor, I would consider it a huge concession. Some projects might warrant having a, a true archaeologist or other professional documenter on hand to record, photograph, and salvage with the backhoe's cooperation, of course. Different shoring or sloping techniques are required to stabilize the wall uh, of the excavated trench, depending upon the type of soil encountered. For this reason, it is best to have a soil test on prior to breaking ground. The excavation should not exceed below the foundation or footing. If one exists, the 1989 OSHA amendments require that all excavations deeper than 5 feet be sloped at no greater than a 45 degrees from the bottom of the trench. This is almost impossible to comply with most historic sites. So sharing the earth wall with lumber or other materials is the only alternative. Consequently, each of the following operations will have to be repeated as the shoring system is moved. Since the other half of the shoring system is the foundation wall, it is also proved to have a professional analysis 
of the building's and st building structure and integrity. The, the next step is to clean the foundation using bristle, bristle brushes and high-pressure water. This inevitable task reveals a number of small mortar or brick failures, as well as any other structural problems. After addressing all of these, it is often advisable to parge the entire below-grade surface to bring it to a fairly smooth plane. This flat surface will keep the protective board that guards the waterproofing from breaking down during backfilling. A parge made with one bag-type Portland cement to 16 shovels of sand is suitable for most buildings. If particularly soft or spalled brick is encountered, it may be better to use weaker parchment mix such as a brick mortar and sand. Unless the excavation has been opened and the brick washed for more than a week there, it is generally no need to wet the surface prior to parging. However, before proceeding with any waterproofing, the parging or existing masonry surface must be thoroughly dry. When the weather refuses to cooperate, they sometimes use large propane torches and space heaters to accelerate driving, drying of the surface. So let's, number two, let's size up the systems. At this point, it is time to choose one of the 20th century products to apply to the masonry surface. So um, you have a lot of options here. Um, you have Grace's Bitome or Owens Corning Tough and Dry, now sold by Coke Materials Company, with the exception of Bennonite, a naturally occurring mineral that swells when wetted to form a blocking membrane, membrane with and, and sheet lead. I think of these two representative of the waterproofing industry today. Bitotim 3100 is a sheet-applied rubberized asphalt membrane intricately bonded with a polyethylene film. Originally available only through dealer installers, it is now sold over-the-counter for installation by contractors or individuals, though this is not any light-duty task by any stretch. So within 24 hours of beginning application, the manufacturer's primer has to be rolled on the wall surface. This primer becomes, <laughs> comes with numerous health warnings, the most significant of which I found to be to maintain proper ventilation. So if good air circulation cannot be achieved easily, an air-supplied mask or comparable respirator may be necessary. So Betuim is, is 60 mils thick and comes in three-foot-wide rolls with a peel back, peeling back. It generally requires at least two people to apply these sheets to the prime vertical surface. On old houses, it is best to start with Betuim as close to the finished grade as possible. The trick is to adhere the material without any crimps or air pockets, a process that is similar to applying, applying decals to any dry surface. Ideally, all the sheets are hung with a 2.5-inch vertical lap joint. The instructions recommend that the application be doubled at all corners and the horizontal short joints be caulked with Grace's Maskic EM3000. Why a bit to him, 3100 may sound difficult 
or unforgiving to work with, it is an excellent product and can be mastered when it's once mastered. It is ideal for a segmented job site since you can stop and start at any time. The one feature which I particularly like about Bitoim is that it bears a strong resemblance to a bicycle inner tube. The membrane is easily defeated by a small hole or tear, but it's easy to, re- to patch before you bury it in a, re- a recessed um, area into your lawn. To help prevent punctures during backfilling, it is advisable to install a protection board against the bitwim surface, which are several products available for this purpose. And the primary requirement for any of them is that they be non-biodegradable. Tough and dry membrane is a, pol- a polymer modified asphalt, which is spray applied at a high temperature. It is resilient, seamless, quick to install, and inexpensive typically under $2 per square foot in place. It can be applied at 20 degrees Fahrenheit and remains flexible down to to 10 degrees Fahrenheit. As with bitoim, it requires a modern, smooth masonry surface for proper bonding. Tough and dry is very elastic and can easily bridge non-structural cracks. It is also resistant to mold growth and chemical and bacterial attack. Unlike bitoim, tough and dry is the most readily available to the consumer. It requires no special equipment for installation, and is as of this uh, as of this podcast is only obtained through licensed distributors. The need to mobilize and set up equipment means that the site has to be a hundred percent ready when the install arrives for you, and to end up pay- unless you want to end up paying for additional truck trips. Cold joints are accepted. So with good planning, a cut-up job can still be feasible and cost quite effectively. At, at, a, at a fiberglass installation manufacturer, Owens Corning decided to take their waterproofing system one step further. Instead of just providing a protection board for the membrane, they designed an installation board with channels the water into the foundation drains while providing thermal values of R.1 and R10. This drain board also absorbs moderate soil expansion without losing drainage capabilities. So this is with Owens Corning, which claims that 65% compression, the board has the drainage capacity of several sand courses. One incidental benefit that is the insulation board bonds to the hot asphalt, simplifying the foundation drain and backfill operations. So, Getting down, let's talk about the drains now, okay? So installing foundation drains and backfillings, which which the trench are the last two operations of the waterproofing process, and in most cases should be started soon after the waterproofing product is applied. The foundation drain system is rigid, rigid, perforated pipe laid carefully in a bed of washed gravel, a minimum of three inches thick. Our first choice for pipe is 4-inch schedule or 20 or thin wall PVC. Due to its strength and relative cost, schedule 40 uh, provides with an O-ring sealed bell coupling. Would also be good choices, but are typically more expensive. Corrugated ADS is the popular, all-purposeful foundation drain material, but I can find that it crushes easily and it is difficult to grade. 
clay drain tile has been made for decades and is still in use. I have removed old drains that are constructed of 4-inch octagonal terracotta tiles, roughly 12 inches long, and butter end end to end. The joints between sections were loose and served the same purpose as perforations do today. Grading the pipe requires some compromising. In new construction, you try to find a a fall of 1 8 inch per linear foot of run. However, when working with the restrictions and retrofittings, a historic structure may have to come up with the conclusion that it is adequate to lay the pipe along the foundations with no fill. Then, once the system leaves the corners of the, of the building, which we sketch to so, we, we switch to solid pipe, which is gra- which is graduated. Wherever the situation, the outlet must be brought to daylight, even if it means to run a hundred foot of pipe to an open area trench or a sub pump and or pump combination. The old school of thought is that the pipe should be installed with the perforations down to prevent the silt buildup. I feel the pipe is more effective with the perforations up and the filter system at an integral part of the system. The last step is economical builder's insurance. The entire perimeter excavation is filled with 36 inch of washed three quarter inch gravel. So next, the gravel is converted (coughs) covered with a filler fabric such as Amco products or a layer of straw. The job is completed within 24 inch, inches of a dream, uh, clean topsoil or clay. So if it's to be paved, and that site is ready for final finish landscaping. So anyway, so uh, we hope everyone got something out of it, uh, you know, trying to uh, remedy some historic home problems with, with moisture. Um, so anyway... Signing out, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist.